Yeah, that's good. All right, you can turn to the book of Genesis. No, that's not my uh, WWE entrance music or my baseball walk-up song. Um, I'm not the hero you're looking for, okay? Uh, the reason we just heard that song that may, felt, may have felt extremely out of place uh, is because of what we're going to title the next four messages uh, leading up to Advent. I know that's like real emotional whiplash that we just had. That song is Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero, and some of you guys just now went back to like clubbing in the 80s, and that's between you and the Lord, okay? <laughs> or you may know that from uh, the movie Footloose, or perhaps even from the movie Shrek 2, or many other pop culture references that we could make, right? That song, uh, again, by Bonnie Tyler, <clears throat> is about, it's, it's about seeking uh, a her heroic man, um, because I don't, I, I'm not going to get into the, the, the inner thoughts of Bonnie Tyler as she's creating that song, but the gist of the song is that no man's good enough. In fact, she says, um, looking for a man that's good enough for what she needs, to, to whatever that means, uh, she says, where are all the good men gone? Where are all the gods, is what she says. She, more than a man is what she needs, in other words. Where are all the good men gone? Where are all the, the gods, she says. Then she references Hercules. Where, where do we need a Hercules? We need a Superman, she even says in the song. You know what, the, the central theme of that song is that no man is good enough. They need a God-man. That's, that's what Hercules is, right? Hercules is born of Zeus and a human woman. She even understands that no man, whatever she needs, is good enough for what she needs. She needs a God-man. She needs a hero, right? And again, not me. I'm not, the, wasn't, that wasn't supposed to be like, a, you know, that's why, whatever. You see, here's the thing, church. We see great men and women in the Bible, but they were simply never good enough or able to grant what people really needed. We see many great figures, heroic figures even, in God's Word, but none of them were able to grant us what people really needed, and that is rescue, not from a nation, not from an army, but rescue from our greatest peril, which is the power of sin. And no man is good enough. We need a hero. We need a God-man, right? This week, as we're looking at the first week of Advent, a message of hope which is what this initial candle represents. That message of hope begins with tremendous loss. You know, there are many things in the world, and beyond the world, by the way, that make me feel very small. They make you feel small, right? What are some of the things that make you feel small? You may see a, a massive, you know, nature and say, wow, that makes me feel so small. Look at the mountains. I look at the sun and the planets and think, we're made in the image of God, right? There's so many more major things that God spoke into existence, the sun, the planets, the mountains, the oceans, and yet we, human beings, were the ones that God said were made in his own image. That's a special feeling. That's why David said, what is man that you're mindful of him, right? There are many bigger things than me, and yet God saw human beings and said, they're special. We were created as spiritual beings. In fact, later on in chapter 2, verse 7, it says that God himself breathed into man the breath of life. Adam was the firstborn of the creation of mankind, literally. God's design for them was to have dominion over creation, which we just got done reading. He said to multiply on the earth and subdue it. He even gave them a role. He said, you're going to work in this garden. In chapter 2, verse 15, he put them in the garden and said, you're going to work here. and You're going to exercise dominion and subdue this earth. Special position, right? Made in God's image. Look at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up, check this out, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. How many trees? Every one of them. Every one that was pleasant to the sight, every one of them that was good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I I said don't miss that because I want you to see that he put every tree pleasant and good for food. Every. In other words, men lacked nothing. Okay. Lacked nothing that was needed at least. Lacked nothing. The tree of life there. Life eternal. They were to take from and have everything that they needed. They didn't, they didn't need another tree. They didn't need another fruit. God gave them everything that was desirable to the eyes. Everything they needed was right there. And yet there was a tree that they were instructed to keep away from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Obviously, he wasn't saying you were going to be smitten there, because we know that they lived a life after that. But from that day forward, they were perpetually in a state of dying and decay. You see, in Adam, it's not just about who we were made to be. It's also about who we are. That's the second thing there. Who we are in Adam. We were designed to be one thing, but we are, as a result of what we're about to see, another thing. And you know the rest of the story, what happens next, right? Satan speaking through a creature, a snake, a serpent, speaking through a creature, preyed on man who lacked nothing that they needed and convinced them that they lacked something that God had selfishly kept from them. You see this in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice something here. That it wasn't the tree that made, it wasn't that the tree was made of impure substance. It wasn't poisoned fruit. The tree didn't condemn man. Transgressing a holy God did. There's nothing inherently evil about the tree is that they had disobeyed a holy God's instruction for them. And so sin entered the world. The tree didn't condemn man. Sin did. This week, or maybe it was last week, one of my children got real sneaky on me. I don't know where they get that from, right? But they got real sneaky on me, and um, we try to, we're not like, you know, too controlling with our kids' consumption of food and drink intake, I don't think. But I drank Kool-Aid like it was water, and was like, well, it's the prim- water is the primary ingredient, but that's not a good justified reason to just consume Kool-Aid like it's water, right? So we try to like, be like, hey, you know what, that's probably why my immune system is so trash, which you're hearing right this second, by the way. And so we try to help them out and see like, hey, you know, can't just have candy or sugar all the time, so we need to control what we're eating. But one day, one of my kids, I'm not going to say his or her, almost, okay, I'm not going to say his or her name, but they snuck into the refrigerator, had a hankering for some cookie dough, opened the bag, and by the way, instead of taking an entire piece of cookie dough, just took a bite of one of the pieces of cookie dough and put it back. <laughs> That's not exactly quick-witted, right? I may not have noticed an entire piece missing. I noticed, we noticed a bite of one of them missing, right? You see, the cookie dough is delicious, and it wasn't inherently evil, but what that one did was, and what was that? Disobedience, right? Is that the Father had put into place an instruction, and they chose rebellion against the authority figure. You see, Adam and Eve, they ate. Immediately, it says that their nakedness became shameful, 
They're exposed, right? And don't miss that. Before they were naked and no big deal, right? But it's only when they realized that there was something worth hiding that they're ashamed and entered their hearts. The next thing that happens in the book of Genesis chapter three is the pronouncement of curses, consequences. In other words, the justice of God on display. God had said, right, the day you eat of it, you will die. So for him to be a just God, a fair God, a faithful and true God to his own instruction, he couldn't say, okay, I know I said that, but don't worry about it. No, if God's a God of justice, he must pour out the consequences that he has said were due, right? And so God in his justice poured out a pronouncement of consequences. And yet, a promise of redemption, of love, which we'll see in a moment. But the justice poured out banishment from the garden because of two things that are closely related to one another. They were banished from the garden, number one, because they no longer could be near God. You see, God is holy. And for him to remain holy, set apart, perfect, righteous, he could not be in fellowship with sinners. He could not remain clean and be near the unclean. And so God in his holiness had to say, I can no longer be with you and you can no longer be with me and me remain who I am. And so they had to leave the garden that God had created and designed for them to exist in, no longer in intimacy and fellowship with him, in separation from him. Not, not only could they no longer be near God, they also could no longer access, please hear this, they could no longer access the tree of life. They can no longer access the tree of life, eternal life that God had given to them. You see, God must be just, he must be true to enforce the aforementioned consequences of death. As he said, you shall surely die, he could not give them access to life, see? That's what it says in Genesis 3, 22 through 24, which are, I think, so often overlooked here in this, but I don't want you to miss it. Chapter 3, 22 through 24 says, <coughs> then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat, can't do that, and live forever. Sinners can't, not in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, listen to this, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, church, this is who we are. The same thing that was true of Adam and Eve in the garden at the end of Genesis chapter three is who we are today, left to ourselves. Broken, fallen, separated, alienated, hostile against a holy God. You see, they had been created to exercise dominion over animals, but they bowed to an animal. You hear that, right? They were created to exercise dominion over the creatures, and they bowed to a creature. We were created to rule creation, but so often we too are ruled by creation. Not just about being unable to tame a tiger. We can't tame our cell phones. We're ruled by the created order, whereas we're designed for the opposite, right? We are too often ruled by our money, entertainment, our insatiable discontentment. Instead of having dominion and love for the creator, we are dominated and fall for the creation. We were created to give him our everything, and yet at times we struggle to give him anything. This is who we are. Created for intimacy with God, but we daily choose rebellion. 
You see, the nature that we inherit when we enter this world is not one of neutrality. Am I going to be a good person or a bad person? No, the nature that we inherit is one of unlearned opposition to God. Nature. Natural. It's who we are. In short, as we look at in Adam who we are, simply put, we are not currently what we were meant to be. Right? Yeah? We are not currently what we were meant to be. We are not currently who we were when God said, this is very good. And if we stop there, <clears throat> without Jesus, the story of the Bible and the story of our existence is one of despair. It's not one of hope. It's one of hopelessness. But not to be lost in his wrath and his justice. God made a saving promise, one of hope. And we looked over it, but look back at chapter 3, verse 15. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion. That's a really confusing word that simply means it's the first foreshadowing of the good news of the gospel. And it's in verse 15 where it says this. <clears throat> I will put enmity between you, the serpent, the Satan, as we will later figure out, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice it says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Why is that relevant? Because the message there is that there will be a seed of Eve, a seed of the woman, a man later to come, who will be dealt a painful blow to the heel, bruising your heel, it says, but that that one would deal a death blow, a fatal blow, a head blow to the serpent. Who is that? It's the promise of Jesus, the one who is to come the Son of Man, the God-Man, who would come and fulfill a loving promise made that can't get lost in the weeds of God's wrath and justice. A promise of what is to come, the foretelling, the first foretelling of the gospel, and that's because in Jesus, I want you to know who we are. In Jesus, who we are, which is the other side of that kind of diagram up there. In Jesus, who we are. You see, there have only ever been two men who were not conceived by man. You ever think about that? There have only ever been two men that were not conceived by man. Who are they? I'll give you a hint. Their names are right behind me. Okay. Only been two men who have ever not been conceived by men. One is Adam. The other is Jesus. Adam wasn't conceived by man. Who conceived Adam? Let there be man. And there was. Who conceived him? God did, right? God conceived the first man. Who conceived Jesus? God did, right? By the way, that's why you ever think, why is, the, why is the virgin birth so important? Why is that such a necessary thing? Because in order for, for Jesus not to inherit the same nature that you and I do, he couldn't come from Adam. He had to come from God, a different nature. The virgin birth is absolutely essential to the miracle of the Christmas story, church. As conceived children of man dating back to Adam, we received the same nature that they earned at the fall, a sin nature, but Jesus did not. Flip over to the book of Romans. <clears throat> Hopefully you kept a finger there. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5 a couple times here, and again, we're going to look at several other passages now before we wrap up today, okay? Jesus did not receive that sin nature. We did. Romans 5, verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, hear this, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. What does that sound like? It sounds like this passing down of the sin nature of Adam. I'll read it again because some of you guys were getting there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, that's Adam, right? That's, that's Eden. And so death spread to all men because all sin. In other words, sin is not first learned behavior. It is inherited nature, right? From birth, we naturally are self-centered, not other-centered, and certainly not God-centered. We're self-centered. We're self-gratifying naturally. We're self-preserving. Isn't that what motivated the first sin? Self-preservation, self-gratification. We can have it better. Forget honoring God. Let's see what we are missing. This tree, he's keeping it from us. The serpent's right. God doesn't want us to be happy. Self-gratification, self preservation mode. And just like then, today remains true. Sin overpromises but underdelivers every single time. You show me sin, and I will show you the overpromising of sin and the underdelivering of sin every single time. And I know you've heard me say that before, and I will say it again because it is a staunch reminder. We have to be reminded, and yet we'll forget. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And in Adam, sin and death spread. It was passed down to all men. Our English word for that, you won't find this in the scriptures, but the English sort of terminology that we have for that is the word imputation, not amputation. Right? That's a very different word. Imputation, whereas amputation is taking something away. Imputation is ascribing something to somebody else. This is yours now. How do we have imputation in Adam? Because as Adam's sin nature took over, every human being after him was ascribed the same nature in return, imputed on. Paul regularly draws comparison between Adam and Jesus. In Romans 5, which we're looking at, <clears throat> I'm not going to read the verse, but in verse 14, he calls Adam a type. It doesn't mean a sort. That word type literally means a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. He says Adam was a type of the one who was to come, and that's Jesus. Adam, we see in things in Adam, we see them more amazingly, more beautifully, more gloriously in the person of Jesus. You see, I'll give you an example of a type of who Adam was. Just as Satan twisted the words of God in the garden, when he said, did God really say? Satan did the same thing in tempting Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. You ever think about that? Did God really say? You know, you can do this over here. You're powerful. You could take matters into your own hands, Jesus. The difference is that what Jesus suffered in the wilderness was a greater temptation. Think about the juxtaposition there. Because where Adam and Eve were in a bountiful garden lacking nothing, Jesus was in a barren desert, empty from fasting for 40 days. What's the greater temptation? How about that, man? He's greater than Adam. Where men failed, Jesus triumphed. Where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus was victorious, and not for a moment of a glance in a garden, but for 40 days and an entire life of wilderness wanderings, difficulty, targeting. Adam was literally the firstborn of creation, but that was a title ascribed later on, more fittingly, to Jesus, not because he was created, but because none were of a position that was higher than we looked at this in Colossians on Wednesday just recently, but Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Look very closely at these words on the screen. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, there it is, of creation. For by him 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Listen, he's the beginning, the firstborn, not just of creation, but the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means on top. He means the firstborn of creation. It's not a matter of him being created. It means he, he being the top of all things that exists, preeminent. Who's the real firstborn of creation? Depends on what we're asking, right? Adam, chronologically, Jesus in power. The firstborn of creation. It also says he's the firstborn of the dead. And man, this is going to rock your world, I think. So beautiful, y'all. This is the gospel. In Adam, life was created in the garden. In Jesus, by the way, Jesus was resurrected in a garden tomb. You know that? So John chapter 20 tells us he was mistaken for the gardener. You know why? Because he was buried at Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It was a garden tomb. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn of the new creation. God making all things new, breathing new life for the very first time in a garden. In Adam, life was created in the garden. In Jesus, he was resurrected in a garden tomb, the firstborn of the new creation. And please don't miss this, the good news here. Think of the garden. Think of the wages of sin. Suddenly in Jesus, please hear this. Death has met its death. Surely you will die. You know what Jesus said? You follow me and surely you will live. Come on, y'all. Surely you will die. Jesus suddenly says, I'm alive. If you're in me, suddenly you too will have life. He put a big stop sign on the whole you will surely die thing and said, in me, you can have life and life abundantly, eternal life, for God so loved the world. Jesus said that to Nicodemus right before that verse, John 3, 16, when he said, you look to me, you'll be born again. What does that sound like? New creation. Because he defeated the grave we too may be given new life. Guys, that is the good news of the gospel. That's why Advent is worth celebrating. Romans 5, 18 and 19, back to business. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam, so act of, one act of righteousness, the death and crucifixion of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam, so the one man's, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's a new imputation. No longer it's sin ascribed to you. No, no, no. The new imputation is that if you follow the Lord, if you give your life to Christ, your sin is ascribed, imputed onto him. And you know what's imputed onto you? Not your sin. The righteousness of Jesus. The good news of the gospel. Praise God for imputation, man. Our sin to him, his righteousness to us, by faith, we may be saved for all who call upon the name of the Lord. It's a substitutionary payment. It's where, the, we talked about this, right? The justice and love of God, the perfect wrath that must be paid on sin. How can they say, surely you will die? How can God say, nevermore? Because Jesus paid the death penalty that you may receive life. How can it be? First Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The true and better Adam. 
Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, <clears throat> we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, it's easy to hear that and forget the beginning of the story. Hear it again and think about how foreign that was to our ancestors who were kicked out of the garden. Therefore, since we have been justified, it means declared righteous by faith, we have, listen, peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, peace, the very thing lost in Adam, gained in Jesus. Why can you come into this place and be encouraged? That's why. Because apart from the good news of the gospel, this is not a place of hope. This is a place where you come to hear a terrible message of despair week in and week out. This would be a foolish place to be. You'd rather bury your head in the sand and not be reminded of the devastating news apart from that good news right there. Guys, if that don't rock your boat, if that doesn't stir your affections, I don't know. We've gone from forbidden and banished from eternal life in Adam to given eternal life in Jesus. When Christ comes offering eternal life, you remember what I said about the tree of life? Banished from it. That blocked path is cleared. He made a way when there was no way. That's why he said in John 14, 6, I am the what? Way. I'm the way. The way to what? The way to life. That we're banished from in Adam. Banished from the tree of life. The way to what? The way to life. I'm the way, the truth, and the what? Life. There's no way back to Eden. No way to the Father, except through me, he says. And that is the last thing I want you to see. In Jesus, who we are, but also in Jesus, who we will be. We're about to drop the hammer this time, man. Who we will be, y'all. The Garden of Eden, listen, this garden motif is my, the theme, is my favorite in the Bible. Passion Weekend gets a lot of focus, and it should. But I don't want you to miss the bookends here. I'm about to really enrich this. And this is so special, man. This is why the Christmas season matters. It doesn't matter if not for these bookends that we're about to see. The Garden of Eden reminds us what we have lost. But listen, it also reminds us of what is to come. If that was God's design then, what do you think is God's design for the future? If that's how God created and he said it was very good, do you think he can approve on that? No. That's his design for you. Let's see it. Revelation 21, 4 and 5. Revelation, big, bad, and scary, right? This is beautiful news, man. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says, he will wipe away every tear. I'm gonna read that again. Some of y'all need to hear that today. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, listen, behold, I'm making all things new. Advent is not just the time where we remember Jesus' arrival at Christmas. It's the time that we remember that there is another arrival to come. One, not where Jesus comes and suffers and dies, but one where Jesus reigns supreme and brings us with him. One final salvation, the salvation of which we have been given a foretaste will be given in full, back to Eden. Back to the tree from which we were once forbidden. That's why 
Here's the bookend. Last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 2 says, Through the middle of the street of the city, this is the city of God, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, meaning it never ends. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Do you need healing today? It's coming, man. Verse 14 of the same chapter said, Blessed are those who wash their robes, made, or made clean, so that they may have the right, how radical this sounds, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. If you read that without reading Genesis 3, 22 through 24 about the banishment, you can't see how radical that is. You can't see how amazing it is that we human beings for thousands of years banished from the presence of God are given renewed life, man. What a bookend. What an alpha omega. What a tragic beginning. What a glorious ending. It sounds a whole lot different from the cherubim and the flaming sword, doesn't it? But notice the caveat. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, without getting into the symbolism there, I think it's actually pretty clear. Access to the tree of life is not granted to all. It's granted to those who have been made clean. It's granted to those who are not stained by the death that sin purchased for them. But instead they're washed by the saving work that was purchased for them. You are not saved because you come to church. You are not saved. You will not have eternal life because you've done good. No man has done good. Save one. You will not be saved because of whose family you were born into. You will not be saved because you are born into a Christian nation. That's hogwash, by the way. You will not be saved because of some status or stature. You won't be saved because of the color of your skin. You won't be saved, spared, because of anything, anything about you. You are only saved because of what has been imputed upon you by another. You can never earn the righteousness, the favor of God. But one has earned it on your behalf. I'm here today to tell you, stop fighting for the favor of God and bow your knees and receive it. What better time than this season to finally, for the first time, say, I surrender all and give your life to Jesus. Guys, the Christmas story is so much larger than a nativity scene in Bethlehem. You know that? It's this Alpha Omega story. It is the spark that became the inferno of God's church. Don't put your things up. Because this story is so much larger than a nativity scene in Bethlehem, <clears throat> please don't minimize this opportunity, this cultural opportunity this in-your-home opportunity. Don't minimize it to presents, long car rides, eggnog, and counting down the days until your kids are out of your hair and back in school. Don't minimize it to that. Don't let the season be dulled because this is the 85th Christmas that you've experienced. Praise God that it is. But don't let it be dulled because you've seen so many of them. 
Use this as an opportunity to be missional. Yeah, outside of your home. Yeah, at work. Yeah, at school. But be missional to your children. Help them to see that this is not just about precious little nativity scene. This is about the cosmic war for your soul. This isn't about a baby. This is about the God-man. This isn't about a manger. This is about a cross and an empty tomb. This is about a tree from which we were banished that we've once again been given access to. And so I say this, grieve your sin this season. Rejoice in your Savior this season. And help all those around you to see the same thing. Celebrate this season, not because of what you're going to receive with the presence, from what you received the moment that Jesus said, you're mine and I'm yours. We rejoice in the hope given at his first coming. But we also rejoice in the hope that is approaching at his second. We rejoice in our hero come, but we rejoice that we're holding out for a hero that is yet to come.